Welcome to the east bank of the Willamette River. Walk to the railing where you can see the danger no jumping or diving sign. Pause me if you need more time to find it. Press play when you're in the right spot. Look out over the water. I want you to look across the river and toward downtown Portland. Do you see the city's modest skyline, the charming historic buildings, the sturdy looking harbor wall, the many bridges? Yeah, I'm going to make these structures come crashing down all around you. I'm going to tell you how your time in Keep It Weird Portland could crush you, kill you, maim you, how you and your companions could be murdered by a legacy of lax building codes, a brick crushing a skull here, a loose parapet severing a limb there, how you could be without power, plumbing, cell reception, and internet for months, and how you might end up living in a tent like the homeless you likely passed on your way here. The disaster scenario I'm describing is what could happen to you if the Cascadia subduction zone, the massive fault line just off the Oregon coast, rips one while you're taking this tour. My name is Nathan Gillis. As a former Portland City reporter turned science journalist, I've written on and off about the coming Cascadia big one since 2011. In fact, researching Cascadia, specifically how it's expected to impact the city's infrastructure, building by building, bridge by bridge, is what started my science writing career. I am very fond of Portland, and I've spent an embarrassing amount of time studying its history and buildings. The idea that myself and tens of thousands of my friends and neighbors could die or be made homeless has kept me awake at night for years. On this tour, I want to share that terror and maybe teach you something. Think of it as an architecture tour with an apocalyptic twist. I'm going to take you on the same bridges and streets that I walked while doing my research. See the high rises across the river? We'll talk about how these buildings might not be as seismically sound as some people think. We'll talk about how the city's harbor wall directly across the river from you could crumble. And we'll talk about the city's drawbridges, from the Hawthorne on your left, to the Morrison, Burnside and Steele to your right, and how these iconic Portland landmarks are expected to fail during the big one. Go ahead and use Detour's camera feature to take a photo of the view while you still can, and post it to your social media. I'll wait for you. Just close the camera when you're ready to keep going. Here's the thing. I want you to learn to come to see the city as I have. I know what I'm saying might seem intense, or worse, arrogant, but my hope is that by scaring you just a little, I might spur you to take some action. Not by loading your house with supplies, though you should certainly do that if you live here, but by pushing your elected officials to act. Because while your individual choice to stockpile food, water, and medical supplies might keep you and your loved ones alive in the weeks and months following the quake, there's a larger collective decision that the entire region needs to make to ensure your survival. We need to ready our infrastructure for the big one. And that's not something any one person can do alone. Now turn your back to the water and take a look at the modern looking building to your left. This is Portland Fire and Rescue Station 21. This building will be crucial when the big one hits. With the building on your left, you should be able to see the highway up ahead. This is the Markham Bridge. Since 1966, this behemoth of concrete and steel has ferried its fair share of Interstate 5 motorists over the Willamette River. This is the first Oregon Interstate Bridge to receive a seismic upgrade, or retrofit. Now, a retrofit is exactly what it sounds like, a way to fix up something old to behave like something newer and better engineered. How well the Markham's retrofit will hold up during the Cascadia Big One is of paramount importance to the station on your left. As you can see, the station is very close to the bridge. Turn around and look back at the water to get a better look. Look at the fire station. Go ahead and walk down the metal ramp that leads to energy and environmental design, or LEED, meaning it has been built with a sizable amount of recycled materials, sustainably harvest wood, and gets 100% of its energy from renewables. Now you can't see them, but there are solar panels on the roof. The station has also been built to the latest seismic codes, replacing a seismically anemic 1960s-era station that once sat in this very same spot. And while that's all great, consider this. The bridges surrounding the station, as well as the on and off ramps of those bridges, 
are expected to take a beating in a major Cascadia quake, potentially leading to piles of debris that could cut off the station's engines from nearby emergencies. There is a bright side. Fire Station 21 has a superpower that other Portland stations lack. Notice what looks like a garage attached to the dock? It houses the station's boats. That's the superpower. The station has boats, and the boats can access the river. This is a big deal for a city that's expected to lose the majority of its bridges to Cascadia. Facing the boat garage, turn to your right and look back to the fire station building. Do you see the tall, concrete-covered columns the building rests on? These are called piles. They've been driven deep into the ground to help stabilize the building during an earthquake. There's another seismic engineering feature here that you will not be able to discern. Look at the riverfront underneath and surrounding the emergency facility. It's been worked over, so to speak, to keep it from succumbing to a seismic phenomenon called liquefaction. Remember that word, liquefaction. We'll talk about that later. Head back up the ramp and stop when you get back up to the top. Now, I'm starting with this building because it is frighteningly, hilariously atypical for the city. As an emergency facility, Fire Station 21 has been built to not only withstand a large earthquake and not kill its occupants, it's also intended to be operational. That's something that newer buildings designed for simply living and working in, and that includes newer single-family homes, Portland's explosion of new condos, apartments, and office buildings have not. Older buildings are another story altogether, and we'll get to that too. But for now, let's talk about the city's bridges. Ready to come along? Great. Follow me. Let's get moving. Now, with the fire station behind you, you should see a four-bowl water fountain in front of you. You will find these iconic bronze drinking fountains all over the city. They're called Benson Bubblers. To the left of this particular bubbler, you should see a pedestrian walkway with a black railing that leads up to the bridge. Head up that walkway. Watch out for cyclists and runners and stay to the right. This will take you to the Hawthorne Bridge and into downtown. So my intention with this tour is not to bore you with a lot of science that's already been covered elsewhere. However, there are some details that we need to review. Here they are. The Cascadia subduction zone stretches from Northern California to Vancouver Island in British Columbia. There's a map on your phone. Step aside to the right near the rail and pause and take a look. A subduction zone is the meeting of two plates where one plate is forced or subducted under another plate. In Cascadia's case, the Juan de Fuca plate, which is sometimes classified as three separate plates, is being forced under the North American plate. This process builds a pressure that occasionally explodes in mega earthquakes, similar to the ones that rocked Japan in 2011 and Chile in 2010. Okay, you can keep walking. We're going to stop again at the top of the ramp. If just the lower half of Cascadia ruptures, where the fault meets the San Andreas Fault in Northern California, we're likely to experience a very destructive 8.0 quake. However, if the entire fault from Northern California to Vancouver Island ruptures, then we could experience a much larger earthquake, a 9.0 or greater, and every city and town the side of the Cascade Mountains from Northern California to Vancouver Island will be devastated. There is a 1 in 3 chance Cascadia will have such a megaquake within the next five decades. That's about the same likelihood as you developing cancer in your lifetime. Okay, pause for a moment. Keep out of the way and on the right. Look up at the Markham Bridge above you. Let's check out that seismic retrofit. You should see a series of cables connecting the bridge's rising columns with the roadway above. These connectors are called restraint cables. Here's the thing. During major earthquakes, roadways on top of bridges and columns supporting them from below tend to behave independently of one another. The columns go one way, and the spanning roadways above, obeying inertia, stay more or less in one place. As a result, the columns and roadways part company. This happened all over Chile when the country experienced a subduction zone quake in 2010. Getting the different parts of a structure, be it a bridge or a building, to behave as one, is a big part of what seismic retrofitting is all about. You can think of this as the engineering equivalent of the old patriotic adage, united we stand, divided we fall, with emphasis in this case on the word fall. Look around at the on and off ramps. While the Markham has been retrofitted to, hopefully, not go Splitsville with its supports, 
These on and off ramps, as well as the many others spaghettiing in and out through the section of town, are expected to fail Chilean style. So let me give you some friendly advice. Do not seek shelter under a bridge during an earthquake. If you're outside, find a big open space with very little that could fall on you and cover your head. Okay, let's start walking again. Watch out for bikes, turn right, and stay on the right side of the path heading along the Hawthorne Bridge. Head across the Willamette River and into downtown. In 2012, while I was researching one of my first Cascadia stories, I spoke to engineer Bruce Johnson at the Oregon Department of Transportation, or ODOT. Johnson leads ODOT's efforts to retrofit and or replace the state's bridges to prepare for a seismic disaster. Now, while the Markham Bridge has been retrofitted, how well it will actually perform is something of an open question. When we spoke, Johnson was pretty confident that the Markham's retrofit, those cables that you just looked at, remember, would perform as intended. But other engineers I spoke with were less optimistic. Lacking an engineering degree, I am not going to weigh in. However, I offer this anecdote only to point out that there are tons of what-ifs and some debate even among the state and city's engineers about how much damage Cascadia could reap. What is not up for debate is the fate of the bridge that you're on right now. Well over 100 years in age, the Hawthorne Bridge is the oldest operating bridge of its kind in the United States. It's also long been a centerpiece of Portland's bike culture. In a major Cascadia quake, the Hawthorne is expected to fail and fail spectacularly. So, bye-bye bikes. The bridge has both underwater and inland foundations that are vulnerable. It could split from its supports and slide into the river. If the big one strikes while you're on this bridge, chances are you are not going to get off alive. Did your steps quicken a little? I'm guessing you want to get the heck off this thing. But pause for a minute here for me, please. Turn to your left and look at the Markham Bridge. Look where it crosses over the river. It's the next bridge over. Notice those thick bases where the bridge straddles the Willamette? This is where the bridge has been base isolated. Base isolation is another mainstay of seismic engineering. It allows the foundations of bridges and buildings to move independently of the ground they rest on, but this time in a good way. This keeps them from absorbing too much energy from the shaking ground. Notice how the Markham has a double-decker structure? If it reminds you a little of the Bay Bridge that crushed several motorists during California's 1989 World Series earthquake, then you're not alone. That's what ODOT engineers thought as well. Go ahead and continue walking across the bridge. Following the World Series quake, called the Loma Prieta quake in the scientific community, a team of ODOT engineers concluded that the Markham could suffer a similar fate to the Bay Bridge if a powerful enough earthquake were to strike. As a result of this pioneering work, the Markham got its retrofit. Okay, pause again and look to your left. Just past the Markham, you should be able to see the four piers and many white cables of the pedestrian, bike, and light rail only Tillicum Crossing. This is the first bridge to span the Willamette in decades. The city and county are naturally very proud of it. One reason for their pride? Tillicum is one of only two city bridges that have been built to withstand the kind of disaster scenario I've been describing. The full 9.0 Cascadia rip. Other bridges have been retrofitted and the city has been very selective about which bridges get what treatment. The other new and seismically ready bridge is the new Selwood Bridge. Looking past the Tillicum, you won't be able to see it. The bridge is further down the river. Like Fire Station 21, it replaced a very dangerous, older incarnation of itself. What you should be able to see is the Ross Island Bridge. That's the one just past the Tillicum with a steel frame that's below the bridge's span, not above it. This cantilever bridge first opened to the public in 1926. It's expected to suffer major damage to its foundations during the big one. Okay, you can keep walking now. Look ahead of you to the West Hills, which are there, incidentally, due to a separate, less active, though potentially also catastrophic local fault line that runs through the city. Anyway, when the Cascadia big one hits, it's highly likely that these hills and their multi-million dollar homes will be hit with massive landslides, especially if the hills are still saturated by Portland's infamous winter rains. If you look ahead and to the left, you may be able to just glimpse a massive tram hanging from cables. It leads to a big building on top of the hill. 
That's Oregon Health and Science University, OHSU, one of the state's two level one trauma centers. OHSU has built several newer buildings up to seismic code, and it's done seismic retrofit work on tests on most of its other buildings. As by law, have many of the city's other medical providers. But even if OHSU is left standing after the big one, the hospital's location won't exactly be working in anyone's favor, especially if the West Hills get washed out by landslides. And being on that tram probably won't be fun either. Stop up ahead when you see the plaque to your right. Let's pause here. Turn to your right. Do you see the plaque describing this bridge's outstanding engineering? Outstanding on a good day, maybe. But this bridge is definitely not ready for Cascadia. Turn and look toward downtown again. We're going to start a little guided meditation. I want you to imagine that you leave your body. You float high above the ground, above the high-rises of downtown Portland. Now, accelerate. Close your eyes. You whiz past the suburbs of Beaverton and Hillsboro. You pass farmland. You pass the tall trees of the Tillamook State Forest. You pass the low-lying coastal town of Oceanside. And then you travel another 60 miles past the shoreline. In the ocean depths below, a crack in the earth 800 miles long erupts with the equivalent energy of 32,000 Hiroshima atom bombs. This sets off the first of the seismic waves, called a P wave. It will take just seconds to reach your body back in Portland. Your body won't feel the wave. It passes through your corporeal form like a ghost. Now go back to your body. Do you feel the bridge shake from the movement of oncoming traffic? I want you to amplify that feeling by several magnitudes. These are the S waves. The S waves arrive in town approximately 15 seconds after the shaking starts on the coast. These waves are powerful. You definitely feel them. The shaking will last anywhere from three to five minutes and will be significantly stronger than even the 1906 quake that all but destroyed San Francisco. The ground undulates underneath your feet. You feel like you're on a boat on rough seas. You feel seasick. You feel dizzy, disoriented, and even possibly drunk. You want to puke. All right, open your eyes. Let's get moving. Keep walking into downtown. As you walk, look up ahead. Do you see the tower-like structures above the bridge's span? Inside those towers, you should be able to see large red blocks. Those are the concrete counterweights that allow this bridge, known as a vertical lift bridge, to rise and fall to let boats pass underneath. Each counterweight weighs about 450 tons. Yeah, that means this bridge is incredibly top-heavy. It's also very old. The Hawthorne Bridge had its heyday when Ford's Model T was all the rage. It's definitely not up to seismic snuff. Soon after the S-waves arrive, the counterweights start to swing. Once they start, they can't stop. Within no time they're swinging out of control. They tear themselves free of their steel cages and crash into the bridge and the Willamette. The last thing you see before you join them is red. Red painted concrete inches from your face. Okay, um, that might have been a little mean of me, but I did say that I was going to scare you and make buildings and bridges come crashing down all around you. As you walk, look to your right. I'm now going to point out the fate of Portland's other troubled bridges. Be sure to keep one eye ahead of you on the path, and again, watch out for bikes. Closest to you is the Morrison Bridge. Built in the 50s, the Morrison is also a drawbridge, though it's not a vertical lift like the Hawthorne. The Morrison is expected to be severely wrecked during the big one. Most likely, it's going to split from its supports and suffer damage to its moving parts and foundations. Just past the Morrison is the Burnside Bridge. Also a drawbridge, the Burnside opened in 1926, and it too is expected to take a beating, again in pretty much the same way as the Morrison. However, like the Markham at the start of this tour, and unlike the Hawthorne and Morrison bridges, the Burnside Bridge has received a very significant seismic retrofit. And it's set to get still more work done. The reason? The bridge is considered an essential route for emergency vehicles. So, here's hoping. 
Okay, I bet you're ready to get the heck off this bridge. Keep walking until you see a set of stairs going down and to the right. Walk down the stairs. If you're unable to take the stairs, follow the ramp as it curves and heads into the park. Meet us at the bottom of the stairs. Pause the tour until you get there. If you're taking the stairs, when you get to the bottom, turn to the left. We are heading into Tom McCall Waterfront Park. Keep the river to your right. What I've been telling you just scratches the surface. Portland is sometimes called Bridgetown. It has over 160 bridge structures, by the city's estimates. Most of these, and here's the city's official language, could collapse in a moderate seismic event. Cascadia, however, will not be moderate, and it won't just affect Portland. The earthquake is expected to cause problems along the entire northwest coast, affecting everything this side of the Cascade Mountains. Statewide, ODOT has replaced or retrofitted roughly 300 bridges. However, this is not nearly enough. The agency estimates it still needs to replace or retrofit three times that many to be ready for Cascadia. At the current rate, that will take about 200 years. Just a reminder, there is a 1 in 3 chance Cascadia will pop within the next five decades. I first learned how bad the Cascadia quake could be back in August 2011 from a guy named Pat Corcoran. At the time, I had just snagged a communications fellowship with a scientific outfit called Oregon Sea Grant. My job was to write about the research into things like climate change and Cascadia. And I met up with Pat in Astoria, Oregon, the small coastal town best known for being the place where the Goonies was filmed. Okay, follow the path to the right. Head down the ramp. Watch for runners and bikes. When you get to the bottom of the ramp, step aside onto the landing and stop there. Pat's gig for Sea Grant was and is to inform Oregon residents about coastal hazards. He talks a lot about Cascadia, the earthquake, and the tsunami it will create. As you can imagine, nobody really wants to hear this scary stuff, especially if you live on the coast. So to get the Cascadia message across, you really need someone who can work a room. Pat is just the guy for the job. Stop here. Now is as good of a time as any to mention the tsunami. Here's what Pat told me when we spoke near the Astoria docks. Shortly after the earthquake's shaking subsides, a killer tsunami several stories tall is expected to pretty much destroy the region's entire low-lying coastal communities. That much is clear. What's unclear is how Cascadia will affect other bodies of water, and that includes the Columbia River, not far from where Pat and I were talking. Look at the Willamette River. How this body of water will behave during Cascadia is something of a mystery. I know because I asked around. One tsunami researcher I interviewed was Dave Hill of Oregon State University. When I spoke to Dave several years ago, he and fellow OSU researcher Harry Yi had both just finished work that had mathematically modeled how a Cascadia-triggered tsunami might affect the Columbia River. As you look at the Willamette, imagine a three- to four-story tall wave deluging past. This, Dave and Harry concluded, is what will happen starting at the mouth of the Columbia near Astoria as the tsunami triggered in the Pacific starts heading upriver. Had that happened when I was interviewing Pat, the two of us and many others would have been washed out to sea. Okay, that sounds understandably horrifying, but here's where I actually have some good news. The underwater landscape of the Columbia is so complex and rough from sediment that it's actually expected to slow the tsunami down and weaken it considerably. Astoria will still be hit hard, but by Harry's estimates, when the wave eventually reaches Portland, and it will, the once monster will have been reduced to a mere ripple that houseboat owners might not even notice. I learned much of this from Harry over Skype while he was in Japan, not far from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant that went critical in the 2011 quake. He said the coast was empty, the birds were returning, but the people hadn't yet. He said he thought Oregon's coast might look like this after the Cascadia quake. A landscape going back to nature. The big question for the Willamette is how the water will respond to the ground shaking. There won't be a tsunami on this river, but there's not a lot of good research on how large bodies of water respond to earthquakes, Dave and Harry told me. Let's get moving. If you're facing the water, turn toward your left and keep walking with the Willamette on your right. 
Now, if you're wondering how or why I should know such trifling details, I can only say that researching Cascadia became something of an obsession of mine for a while. It started with a story I wrote in 2012 for the Portland Mercury. The city's, hmm, how shall I put it, colorful all weekly. Fresh out of journalism school and my science writing fellowship, I had just written my first Cascadia story on Pat, and I was itching to write something bigger. The Mercury's lead editor, Steve Humphrey, reluctantly said, okay, provided it wasn't as boring as the other Cascadia stories that his and other papers had written the previous year following the Japanese quake and tsunami. So we settled on a unique strategy, figure out exactly what was going to be destroyed in exactly what way, and then destroy them one by one, Independence Day style. As Steve put it, I want disaster porn. So that's what I wrote. This tour, in turn, draws in large part on snippets from that work. I read official report after official report, and there's a lot of them. And I called lots of experts, including several very, very patient seismic engineers. And I asked questions like, how much do the Hawthorne counterweights weigh? One thing Pat taught me is frightening people really works. And that Mercury story in particular seemed to get under people's skins. On a personal level, the research also, I will admit, got under my skin, changing forever how I saw Portland and its many structures. Let's stop here. With that in mind, I want you to resume our creative visualization and disaster. Turn to your left and look at the grass. It's now several minutes since the shaking started. Miraculously, you are here alive now and not Willamette fish food. The shaking is so intense you have trouble keeping upright. You see water seeping from the grass. It collects in large pools. What you're seeing is a phenomenon called liquefaction, or what happens when solids start to behave like liquids. Basically, imagine that the ground you're standing on has been transformed by the intense shaking into something like quicksand. Now add to this a related phenomenon called lateral spreading, which I like to visualize as many landslides moving in horizontal waves. During earthquakes, these twin terrors are common on waterfront land that's been infilled, like the ground under your feet has. Liquefaction and lateral spreading are exactly what Fire Station 21 across the river wants to avoid with its piles and worked over soil. Now turn and look over the river. Go ahead and walk over to look at the harbor wall more closely. Look to your right. You should get a nice view of the harbor wall where it juts out a bit under the Hawthorne Bridge. In the ground just below you, liquefaction is placing intense pressure on Portland's aging harbor wall, which here and there begins to bulge, crack, and tumble into the Willamette River. That's what I wrote in my 2012 How Everything Will Be Destroyed disaster porn piece for the Mercury. Now look to your left at the Morrison Bridge. That's the closest bridge to where you are now standing. Do you see how its concrete supports rest in the water near the harbor wall? My research, again mostly based on official documents and interviews with people smarter than me, led me to the conclusion that the harbor wall could succumb to liquefaction and lateral spreading and fall into the river, possibly even hitting the Morrison and other bridges' supports and further damaging them in the process. The exact wording in the city's official disaster report was this. The harbor wall is vulnerable to lateral spreading from unstable liquefiable soils. So you can imagine my surprise when I noticed that that particular section of the city's report was rewritten following my story. The harbor wall, constructed in the 1930s, may be vulnerable to lateral spreading from unstable liquefiable soils. However, no formal study of the harbor wall has been performed. Then came the tour. In April 2012, shortly after my article was published, the city held a media-only walking tour close to where we are now in this very park. So, you know, similar to this tour, but humorless and lacking in urgency. When the tour came to the harbor wall, a city engineer told me and the rest of the gathered media, the wall is really in superb condition. He was mum about lateral spreading and liquefaction. So I got suspicious. So myself and another reporter at the Mercury filed a public records request. It turned up a heated email debate between two engineers about the state of the harbor wall. The emails showed the engineers arguing about the likelihood of a house of cards scenario, in which the quake-damaged Burnside and Morrison bridges might take another hit from the harbor wall crashing into their supports. 
the same conclusion my earlier research had also come to. For whatever reason, City Hall, which had previously been nothing but honest about what a mess Portland will be in following the big one, chose to present a very different public face on their walking tour. Go ahead and turn left on the path now and walk away from the river. We're heading into downtown. Okay, a warning here. Detour uses GPS to know where you are, but GPS doesn't always work perfectly downtown. If you ever feel uncertain about which way to go, you can look at the photographs on your screen or use the map to help guide you. If you reach a destination and I'm not talking, you can use the skip forward button to tell me when you've arrived. As you walk, I want you to look up at the buildings around you. In downtown, they come mostly in three flavors. Shorter, extremely vulnerable brick and stone ones, potentially brittle concrete ones, and steel-framed high-rising ones. Most are good with up and down forces, the weight of their occupants, the building's own weight, that sort of thing. However, many buildings are not good with side-to-side -side or shear forces, and earthquakes love to pummel buildings with shear forces. When you have the light, cross the major parkway ahead of you. Keep walking straight ahead. During California's 1994 Northridge earthquake, shear forcing severely damaged the welds connecting the steel frames on many high-rises. And this was surprising because high-rises are designed to handle shear forces from high winds. In Portland, anything built between 1960 and the mid-1990s is believed to have these weak welds. Turn left into the outdoor parking lot and walk up to the exposed brick on the older-looking building in front of you. Walk past the cars if you have to, but please be careful of active traffic. I want you to look closely at the brick pattern just above your eye level. Look just above where the wall is painted white. Okay, are you looking at the brick pattern? Good. I want you to notice the pattern of bricks from top to bottom. As the rows are stacked one on top of another, the pattern should change. See how every five or six rows, the bricks look skinnier than the bricks above or below them? What you're actually seeing aren't different size bricks, but a change in the direction of how they are stacked. Essentially, the bricks are turned inward 90 degrees to the ones stacked above and below them. This is done to make the bricks, and hence the building, more stable. Look down at the pick on your phone. This will show you what the wall would look like if you could cut it away. This brick pattern is typical of older brick buildings, some of which fall under a category known as unreinforced masonry, or URMs. Why unreinforced? The term basically means that URMs cannot withstand those side-to-side -side earthquake motions because they have not had any retrofitting work done to them. This stabilizing way of stacking bricks often isn't stable enough to withstand even moderate earthquakes. Around the time I started my research, the number of Portland URMs was estimated at around 1,700. In reality, that number should have been much lower. The city's codes have required retrofits of older buildings for years. However, many building owners have found creative ways around the rules. The owners, as I discovered, and city engineers were only all too willing to tell me, didn't want to pay the high cost of doing the work. According to the city's own database, the building in front of you is a URM, which isn't exactly surprising since this is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Portland. When the earth starts shaking, URMs can collapse and collapse really, really quickly, sending bricks flying in the process. These buildings can be killers, so learn to read the bricks, so to speak. If they have the pattern I just pointed out, get the hell away if there's an earthquake. Now facing the brick wall, turn around and walk out of the parking lot. Head back to the sidewalk you came from. Look across the street. Look at the building containing Patty's Bar and Grill. It's the historic Powers Building, built in the 1800s. Do you see its cornices? Those are the decorative flourishes at the top. See the chimney-like features on the top as well? Well, roughly 45 seconds into the earthquake, unsecured eaves, parapets, and other decorative features will start falling from buildings like this one. So watch out, and do not huddle underneath added features for protection. On many retrofitted buildings, cornices, parapets, chimneys, and other decorative features 
are often tied down or otherwise secured to their buildings to prevent them from hurting or killing people. About seven blocks north of here, the Mercury is in an older brick building that has been reinforced. Its historic chimneys, no longer in use, have been replaced with fiberglass lookalikes tied to the building's roof. It's worth noting that many Oregon schools are URMs, as are many churches. And while as a dad of a young child, I'm not one to joke about dead kids, I will offer this piece of advice when it comes to churches. Let me paraphrase something Pat got quoted saying more than once. When the shaking starts, don't pray to Jesus. Be your own Jesus. It's not bad advice, especially if you're on the coast and you can conjure up that whole walking on water bit when the tsunami comes. Now head to the corner, cross towards Patty's Bar and Grill, watch for traffic and crashing cornices. After you cross, turn left and cross again when the traffic is clear. Walk over the max light rail tracks. Keep going straight up the street. See this convenience store coming up on your right? 30 minutes after the initial quake, you might find yourself in a place like this, searching the picked over shelves for bottled water and dried food. Just don't stay too long. Following the initial big one will be aftershocks. These aftershocks will be massive earthquakes unto themselves, and they will further pummel the city's already weak buildings, forcing many into collapse. The aftershocks might plunge you into a panic attack. Every time you feel one, your pulse might quicken. The wind might get knocked out of you. Eventually, however, the aftershocks will become fewer, more spaced out, and less intense. Make a right up here at the corner. Stop after you turn the corner and turn to face the building to your right. This building's owners have done the right thing. This building, built in 1880, has been retrofitted. Its owner is Portland Community College. Look through the windows. Do you see the white beams that zigzag their way up the building? These diagonal cross beams are the most salient features of the retrofit. They're designed to resist, you guessed it, sheer forcing. According to PCC's Gary Sutton, who oversaw several retrofit projects for the college, these cross beams were assembled on the street and lowered in place through slits that were cut in the roof and later filled back in. Once in place, the cross beams were connected to blocks of concrete in the building's basement to make them more secure. More work was done to the building's internal wood frame as well to help stiffen it and, like the Markham, get its different units to behave as one. Now I want you to look at these cross beams and really burn them into your memory. If you see cross beams, and now that I pointed them out to you, you will be primed to see them all over town, the chances are the building is either new or it has been retrofitted. And while I'm not one to give survival advice, though I certainly have already given plenty on this tour, if you're in an earthquake, you'll be much better off inside one of these buildings than out on the street. Because here's the thing about retrofits. Most are only engineered to prevent their buildings from collapsing and or killing their occupants. Having a retrofit does not mean that a building will be structurally sound following an earthquake or even hold up during an earthquake. How well a retrofit will actually perform can't be known until after the fact. There are no safe or earthquake-proof buildings. But some buildings are considerably less risky to be in than others, or for that matter, to flee from. Because here's the other thing about retrofits. Retrofits are designed to resist an earthquake's sheer forces, as this building does, by strengthening the building's internal structure. You can think of this almost like putting a new building inside an old one. However, this internal strengthening cannot do a whole lot for old masonry. Even retrofitted older buildings will see bricks fly loose if the earth shakes enough. And that can happen, again, within seconds of the start of an earthquake. You can't outrun the bricks. If you're in a retrofitted building, your best bet is to stay there. All right, let's move on. Facing the cross beams, head right, back over the max tracks, and keep walking. While we walk, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not a new story. It's an old story. In fact, it's the story I've been telling you. This region has known about the Cascadia subduction zone and the threat it poses for decades. The first story to make public the emerging scientific consensus that the Cascadia subduction zone was both active and dangerous was written way back in 1987 by Linda Monroe, a science reporter for The Oregonian. Since then, multiple books, local news stories, a comic book, several documentaries, have all been published. 
the science covered in these stories is also now decades old. At the corner, wait for the light and cross to your right. Once you're across the street, keep walking straight ahead on Taylor. The word about the Cascadia earthquake has been out for a while. There is no excuse for ignoring it. Yet this region, my region, still isn't doing enough to prevent what will most likely be the biggest natural disaster in United States history. If you're not from here, you might ask, well, why should I care? My answer is tens of thousands are expected to die. However, if the whole human megadeth thing doesn't pull on your heartstrings, let's just say it's the economy, stupid. The Cascadia quake is going to destroy the regional economy. Economic losses from Cascadia are expected to surpass $30 billion, with the number of displaced households reaching to nearly 28,000. What's more, geologists suspect that a major Cascadia quake is likely to trigger a second monster quake on the San Andreas Fault in California. The whole west coast could go down. Stop at the corner. See the orange building diagonal from here? Cross to that corner, whichever way you get the lights for first. I'll meet you over there. Okay, walk down the street with the orange building on your right. Now, I know all of this can sound a bit bleak, and I don't want you to feel hopeless. So here's some more advice. First off, learn about the buildings you live and work in and how likely they are to hold up in a major earthquake. If one hits, don't head for the streets. Experts say drop, cover, and hold on, meaning get under sturdy furniture. Embrace yourself. Keep shoes by your bed so you don't cut your feet on broken glass. Go ahead and store up several weeks of food, water, and medical supplies and learn some basic first aid. When you reach the corner, wait for traffic to clear, cross the street, and head to the park. You'll take the diagonal path into the park. Turn right and walk into the park on the diagonal path. Walk toward the statue in the center of the square. This is Lonsdale Square. Notice the short brick building on your right? It houses the park's restrooms. Fun fact, Lonsdale Square used to be a congregation spot for men only so you'll only find a men's bathroom here. Chapman Square, on the next block down to your left, was for women and children only. If you go there, you'll find a ladies' room. Okay, stop here in front of the statue. An ordinance passed in 1990 repealed the obsolete and largely unenforceable park codes. Presently, the squares are no longer divided by sex or gender. Facing the statue, turn around and look at the brick restroom. I gave you that prepper advice reluctantly. As far as I'm concerned, preparing for Cascadia shouldn't be just your problem. It's everyone's problem. Here's why. Okay, imagine that you really need to go. There are a lot of basic, everyday activities that I bet you take for granted. We all do. But if you think about it, a lot of infrastructure goes into something as simple as you going to the toilet. That's by design. Human waste can spread disease, and that makes getting rid of it in a major city everyone's problem. What I've given you so far is just a superficial glimpse at Portland's infrastructure problem. Below the surface, quite literally in some cases, are fiber optic lines powering your detour, and more importantly, the plumbing that keeps disease off the city streets. Following the big one, the plumbing is expected to be out for months. So when you find yourself without cell reception and plumbing, just remember two things. Like the New Zealanders who survived the 2011 Christchurch earthquake, you'll need the two-bucket system. One for number one, the other, filled with sawdust, for number two. For the record, I would normally be more explicit, but I'm trying to keep this more of a um, family-friendly you-could-die-in-a-disaster detour. We are going to do one more creative visualization. Turn around and look at the lush green grass around you. It's now several weeks after the earthquake. The grass is gone. It's been trampled by campers. The grass is now mud, and it's being dragged about everywhere. You were lucky enough to loot your tent and camping supplies from the local REI outdoor store, about a half-hour walk from where you're at. In times like these, it's a good thing Portland is full of outdoorsy types and the retail establishments that cater to them. The park is filled with others like you, survivors. The city's parks have been designated as emergency meetups following the Cascadia quake. In reality, you're in a kind of refugee camp. 
You stink. You're wounded. You're hungry. You're homeless. And so are hundreds of others. The water which has finally come by truckload is only for drinking, not for bathing. Try to ignore your grief, the loss of your loved ones, how out of touch you feel. Instead, focus on coming together with your fellow survivors. In truth, you don't need to imagine the scene too hard. This park, as well as Chapman Square on the next block, was the center of the city's Occupy Wall Street movement. When the Cascadia quake comes, this and the rest of Portland's parks will go back to looking like Occupy. There will be tents and lots of stinky people, but unlike Occupy, there will likely be injured and dying people everywhere, and possibly human feces festering with disease, as happened after the 2010 Haiti earthquake. Okay, I want you to channel that shock and grief into action. Facing the statue with your back to the bathrooms, walk to the right of the statue and down the diagonal path to the right. The buildings surrounding this park are all government buildings. The building with the columns to your right across the street from the park is the Multnomah County Courthouse, which, incidentally, is being rebuilt to a higher seismic standard elsewhere. In July 2014, I wrote a story titled The Bottom Line Versus the Fault Line. The story was about former Portland City Commissioner Steve Novick. Novick had gotten wise to the fact that not enough building owners were retrofitting their buildings. Okay, when you get to the corner of the park, look to the diagonal corner where there's a building with a blue-green base. We're headed there. Cross in whatever direction you get the lights for first. I'll meet you over there. Now that you've crossed, keep walking with the blue-green building to your left. Novick wanted to create a better URM ordinance. But he soon faced opposition from local landlords who did not want to pay for the seismic retrofits required by the law. They claimed it would hurt their bottom line. They're not alone. Many telecom companies have also gone on record to say that they don't want to pay for seismic retrofits either. That's not good news. Most of Portland's high-tech equipment is housed in buildings that were built before the current seismic standards. Local power providers have a similar problem and have sung a similar tune. Turn left at the corner and keep walking. I bring all this up because too often prepping for Cascadia or other disasters is framed as an individual problem requiring personal responsibility. This is largely nonsense. There's only so much a single person can do. Our bootstraps will only take us so far. Stop here and look up to your left. That's the famed Portlandia statue that shows up in the opening credits of the show of the same name. It was a statue first. Portlandia is the second largest copper statue in the U.S., the Statue of Liberty is the largest. Portlandia was built in Washington, D.C. Artist Raymond Caskey had her shipped here in pieces. In 1985, over 10,000 people came out to watch as she arrived, carried on a Willamette River barge, before being paraded by truck to the spot. As of this recording, the Portlandia building houses several city agencies, including the Portland Water Bureau, a.k.a. the people responsible for handling your poop. The Bureau has taken some impressive strides to update the city's plumbing, but seismic experts still estimate that it will take months for plumbing services to come back online following the big one. As for the building, it was designed by famed architect Michael Graves in 1982. Unfortunately, modern seismic standards for Oregon pretty much start in the mid-1990s. This is one reason why the city plans to spend $195 million to reconstruct sections of the building. And you might not want to be standing under the six-and-a-half-ton statue during a big earthquake. Let's head to our last stop. Keep walking down this block with the Portlandia building on your left. As Americans, we tend to think individual solutions can solve big social, environmental, and political problems. Again, this is nonsense. Small personal changes cannot solve big social problems, be it climate change or Cascadia. At the corner, wait for traffic to clear and cross the street in the same direction we've been heading. You should see a sign for City Hall. We're headed there. Keep walking straight. What's needed, along with individual prepping, is something like a movement of citizens that will hold local utilities and politicians to account and ultimately force them to take the steps needed to make sure the lights stay on, you can make a phone call or send a text, and that you have a way to wash your hands and flush your feces and not die in your home. Stop up ahead at the columns. This is our last stop, Portland's City Hall. If you live here, this is where you would go to speak your mind to the city's political elite. And if this tour has registered on any level, 
and I hope that it has, I strongly encourage you to do so. Here's the problem. Cascadia is nothing like other social issues. Unlike climate change, homelessness, immigrants' rights, and economic inequality, to name a few, the Cascadia subduction zone has virtually no voice in civil society, no groundswell of grassroots concern. Instead, people tend to just get scared and then tune out. But there are tons of good recommendations coming from state and city engineers and emergency planners, and these could use support, including a recommendation to mandate that Portland apartment buildings be safe enough to stay, as engineer Jay Raskin is calling for for the city's affordable housing. If nothing happens, if Cascadia doesn't strike in the next 50 years, but in the next 250 years, at worst, all we've done is made the city and region that much better and created a few jobs in the meantime. And if you're not from here, but have nonetheless followed me this far, and you're still wondering why you should care, remember, you don't want me and tens of thousands of my closest friends knocking on your door asking to use your bathroom. Besides, natural disasters are not as infrequent as we might like to believe. What's more, from lead in our water to the occasional collapsing bridge, most of America is suffering from an infrastructure problem. Earthquakes themselves are also not that infrequent. And while the quakes experienced in Oklahoma, Indiana, Virginia, Colorado, and of course, California, haven't come close to what we're expecting here, sorry for the local pride, guys, I'd like to believe that mentioning them might stir some emotions of solidarity in you. Thanks for coming along and letting me scare you. I know that that was a lot to take in. Believe me, I know. As someone who has thought about Cascadia for a while, I can tell you that the fear won't last forever. But please, do me a favor. Don't tune out and don't forget. Now let me give you one last piece of unsolicited advice. Go get yourself a stiff drink. You've earned it. In fact, I think I'll have one myself. I'm signing off. Cheers.